You're clocked out. We're locked in. You're listening to Crunch Time with Miguez and Mesh here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. To a Wednesday edition of Crunch Time here on the game, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Matt Miguez here broadcasting live from the Evco Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette. Evco Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction. The game hotline is 337-706-0111. And here in Acadiana, you can watch us on our simulcast on Stadium 32.3 and Channel 133. If you have LUS Fiber... The Houston Astros improved to 32-22 and 22 with a 5-1 to one win last night over the Minnesota Twins. Alex Bregman and Chaz McCormick each getting a homer. Jeremy Pena exchanging some words with an umpire. We'll get into all of that. Uh, we'll also break down both the Baton Rouge Regionals and the Coral Gable Regionals, give you the inside scoop on the opponents that LSU and UL could potentially face this weekend. Plus, we'll look at the NBA Finals between the Miami Heat and and the Denver Nuggets. Once again, the game hotline is 337-706-0111. Let's bring in my producer and co-host now, Mr. James Mesh. James, happy Wednesday. Halfway home. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right, Matt. How about you? Ah, it is. It's a good day. The The sun is not out as I would like it. Uh, it it's gotten a little gloomy this afternoon. Um, but this morning the weather was great and it was warm. I was out at MLT Moore Field for the Cajuns final practice before they went out to Miami. And, and look, you know, I've always heard the stories that, you know, turf adds 20 degrees and, and I've experienced it a handful of times, but I don't know. Maybe it was the fact that I was in long pants this morning it was hot, it was real hot. But I will say this, the Cajuns looked good, the Cajuns looked prepared, uh, and they went wheels up to Miami at about 1 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, so if they're not already there, they're pretty close to being down in South Beach. They play at 1 o'clock on Friday afternoon against the Texas Longhorns. Speaking of those Texas Longhorns, Danny Davis is going to join us at 4.30 from the Austin Statesman to talk about the Longhorns and what kind of matchup they'll present for Louisiana Friday afternoon. We'll kick off hour number two with Corey Glore, the voice of the Tulane Green Wave. We'll recap their American Conference Tournament, plus preview the Baton Rouge Regional, and then Brendan Ertle will join us at 5.30 for Hood at Wednesday. But the Texas Longhorns come in 38-20 and 20 on the season. And when you look at their schedule, they went 15-9 and nine in the SEC. I mean, in the Big 12, they're almost in the SEC. Uh, but they opened the season in the college baseball showdown over in Arlington with three games against SEC opposition. They played Arkansas, Missouri, and Vanderbilt. And they lost all three. And so you got off to a slow start went back to Austin, played a four-game stretch against A&M, Corpus Christi, and Indiana, winning three of those. So you were 3-3 three and three when you welcomed, at the time, top-ranked LSU. And everybody remembers that game. It was a 0-0 deadlock until Gavin Dugas hit a three-run home run in the eighth to win it 3-0 for the Tigers. 
And then you, you kind of rolled through the rest of non-conference, beating up on teams like UNO and, and North Dakota State and Manhattan. And then you got in the conference play, and you opened with a top 15 team in Texas Tech, and you swept them. And then you went to Oklahoma State, and you lost two out of three, so on and so forth. You get the point that I'm that I'm making here. Texas, statistically, is the most successful college baseball program in America. Now, this is not the Texas of old. However, it is still Texas. They are a disciplined, well-coached baseball team that is not going to beat themselves. They're going to hit the ball well. They're going to have pitchers that can beat you a variety of ways. They're not going to make fielding errors. They're going to play fundamentally sound baseball. And typically, teams like that are hard to beat. But I'll also say this, and Jay Walker said it yesterday, and I agree with him. Coastal Carolina is a better team this season than Texas. Southern Miss is a better team than Texas. The Cajuns have beaten both of them already. So if you can beat Southern Miss and you can beat Coastal Carolina, you can beat Texas. You can beat Miami. There is no team the rest of the way that the Cajuns cannot beat. Now, a couple of tidbits that are interesting, James, and I want to get your thoughts on this. Last season, Ole Miss won the national championship in baseball, right? They were the 64th team to enter the NCAA tournament. They were the last team in, and they won. Now, their regional last year, they were the three seed in Coral Gables. Louisiana was the 62nd team in. And they're the three seed in Coral Gables. Now, you're, I'm, you're trying to connect some dots, I'm not, I see. I'm not going to say that there's a correlation here. But what I am going to say is that Ole Miss proved last year that it can be done. It can. It, it can, can be done. Because it's the same thing with any team that is riding into a tournament, whether it's in baseball or in college basketball or even in pro sports. Any team that is riding into a playoff that is on a high note, they are a scary team. Oh, and also, you're going to be playing in a town that has produced two eight seeds that are playing in their championship series in the Florida Panthers and the Miami Heat. Both teams are eight seeds. Both teams are playing for the biggest prize in their sport, the Stanley Cup and the Larry O'Brien Trophy. So, don't 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 tell me that Miami can't produce an underdog story. Because I've I've got some evidence that would that would back up that it can. But when if you're Matt Deggs and the Cajuns, I think you just have to take this one I'm not even gonna say one game at a time. I think you gotta take this one at bat at a time. I mean, yeah, one at bat. I was gonna say one inning at a time. Just simplify it down to the simplest form you can think of 
and attack it that way. Because in football, you take it one drive at a time. You take it one play at a time. Take it an inning at a time. Take it in a bat at a time. Figure out, you know, the, the best ways for you to attack this team and then just go do it. But, and look, the mentality of this team should be that you're going to go into Miami and win this regional. And I think you have a chance to do so. However, it's been a successful season for Louisiana regardless of what happens this weekend in Miami. They've made a regional now for the second straight year. That's big. That is big for recruiting. That is good for building your brand. It is all around a win-win situation. Now, do you want to go to Miami and go 0-2? Absolutely not. You do not want to do that. But if you slip up and say you go 1-2 and and you come home you know, Saturday afternoon, well, you know, that's not the end of the world. You picked up a win. There, there will definitely be positives to take away from that. But you heard it from the players this morning, and you heard it from head coach Matt Deggs. This is a business trip. This is not a vacation. Miami might be a vacation spot, but this is not a vacation. They're going to Miami with the mindset that this is strictly business and they have to win three games. Coach Deggs really wishes he was going to Miami for the beach. He, he he wants to be on a beach, but he wants to wait a couple weeks before he's on a beach. Yeah. Because there's there's still some baseball left to play, if uh, if you ask head coach Matt Deggs. But I, I, I'm not going to say that winning this regional is impossible. But, uh, again, it, it, it's an uphill climb. You're, you're a three seed for a reason. It's definitely going to be an uphill climb playing teams like Miami and Texas. It's going to be a challenge, but players like you had seen at the final media day, like Debo, Kyle DeBars, they're pretty hyped for it. Yeah, they're they're definitely excited. I mean, it's 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 such a cool opportunity to get to to go to a historic park like Alex Rodriguez Park and play a historically good baseball program like Miami. Uh, most notably, everybody remembers Todd Walker's home run in '96. It was against Miami. Uh, so I mean, Miami's a historically good baseball program. They've they've produced many teams that have gone to Omaha and have been in this situation. Another team, the other team that we haven't brought up that is in this regional in Coral Gables, are the Black Bears of Maine. James, this team is interesting. They're thirty two and nineteen on the year. They went nineteen and five in the American East Conference. They opened the season taking two out of three against Pitt. And then they kind of struggled through their non-conference, getting swept by Maryland, getting beat by George Mason, only winning one out of three against Winthrop. But then they get into conference. They swept UMBC. They swept UMass Lowell. They swept Albany, including a 20-4 victory. They battled with UMBC again in early May. You had a game with Boston College get canceled, and then you run through the tournament beating UMass Lowell, UMBC, and Binghampton 
to win the conference and get yourself a spot in a regional. This is a talented baseball team. Again, I don't care what league you play in. I don't care what conference you play in. If you go 19-5 and in your conference, kudos to you. Yeah, and that includes going on a seven-game winning streak. Correct. Like, you finish the last four games of the regular season, 4-0, and then you, like you had mentioned, the three games in the American East tournament where you finish out 3-0 and you win the whole thing. So they're kind of riding high, and those are one of those teams I said that if you're going into conference play and it's a team riding high, they are dangerous, and Maine is one of those. And Maine can rake. They have a team OPS of 893. And Jeremiah Jenkins is their leader. He's got an OPS of 1.277. He has 12 doubles, one triple, 20 homers, 75 RBIs. He's got a slugging percentage of 771 and an on-base percentage just over 50%. He gets on base 50% of the time. That is insane. And that's not even the best on-base percentage on the team. Quinn McDaniel gets on base 52% of the time. So the Black Bears may be a four seed, but this is no slouch of a baseball team. Uh, So no matter how you slice it, this is not going to be an easy road for Matt Deggs and company. As we get to 415 now, we'll go ahead and take a timeout. We return. We'll talk about the Baton Rouge Regional. Look at Tulane, Oregon State, and Sam Houston. Plus hear from Jay Johnson and Matt Deggs once again as they prepare for their regionals right here on the game. This is Crunch Time on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. The defending World Series champs are starting to warm up and you can see them live in person. The game 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles wants to hook you up with another Astros weekend getaway. Houston takes on the Cincinnati Reds on Saturday, June 17th, and you can be there by registering in the Game Rewards Club at 1037thegame.com to score four tickets, a tour of Minute Maid Park, and hotel accommodations that Saturday night. Astros weekend getaways are powered by Butcher Air Conditioning, La Meridian Houston downtown, and the game at Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. Got something to say to Miguez and Mesh? Hell yeah! It's easy. Just call the hotline by dialing 337-706-0111. Now back to more Crunch Time with Miguez and Mesh here on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. 420 here on Crunch Time. Matt Miguez, James Mesh. The game hotline is 337-706-0111. If you have a thought on the Saints signing Jesse James or the upcoming regionals this weekend, NBA Finals, anything like that, we would love to hear from you on the game hotline. Looking at the Baton Rouge Regional now, James, we'll start with the two-seed Oregon State. 39-18, and 18. they're 18-12 and 12 in the Pac-12 Conference. Uh, they are 23-6 and six in Corvallis, 12-9 and nine away from home. Uh, some of their notable wins on the season, they got a... They won three out of four in the College Baseball Classic to open the season. Uh, When you got into Pac-12 play, you opened losing two out of three to Washington State. Uh, Then you got swept by Stanford, which, 
not really going to knock you for. Stanford's a, a national seed here in the NCAA tournament. You win two out of three against UC Berkeley. You win two out of three against Washington. You win two out of three against Oregon, which is a big rivalry between Oregon and Oregon State, of course. You pick up a, a huge 15-1 to win over Gonzaga. You sweep USC. You win one out of three against Arizona State. So, And then you won two out of three against UCLA towards the back half of the season. So you had success at various points throughout the regular season. And then when you look at their stat leaders, can, can we just take a moment to appreciate the name that is Travis Bazana? If I'm even saying that right. B-A-Z-Z-A-N-A. Travis Bazana. The young man is hitting 379 on the season. 10 homers, 53 RBIs. Uh, he has a slugging percentage of 635 on the season. And he has 36 stolen bases in this 2023 season. Uh, he is their batting leader pitching-wise. I'm looking at a guy, Jacob Matz, a 4.71 ERA, 72 innings. He has 61 strikeouts. Trent Sellers is their big strikeout guy with 101 strikeouts on the season. So they've got a couple of guys that could really beat you on the mound as well. Um, they have a really good hitting lineup, like I mentioned. They've got you know six guys hitting over 300 uh, in, in their lineup. So... This is going to be a tall order for LSU as well. Sam Houston, 38-23. They went 22-8 in the WAC. And when you look at their statistics under head coach Jay Sirianni, Tyler Davis comes into this hitting 432 on the season. Seven homers, four triples, 59 RBIs. Their RBI leader is Walker Janik with 65 this is another good team that had a lot of respect coming out of the whack again, 22 and 8 in their conference. They finished the season on a four-game winning streak, including battling out of the losers bracket to win the WAC tournament, uh, scoring 21 runs in the championship game. If you look at the WAC tournament for Sam Houston, this offense didn't score more than 10 runs only once. They lost 10 to 6 to Utah Valley on Thursday. They won their first game 11 to 7, and then 17 to 10, and then 22 to 8, and then 12 to 10, and then 21 to 1. So James, this is an offense that can put up some runs if you give them the opportunity to. Yeah, it's going to be a formidable opponent because, I mean, if you're going to be putting up 21 runs. And that concerns me because we've talked about this a lot this year. Outside of Paul Skeens and Ty Floyd, LSU's pitching staff has struggled. Yeah, and I mean, outside of the kind of one time we've seen Paul Skeens not have a great game. Correct. Overall, yeah, it's it's going to be a struggle for 
LSU so as if, a whole when if, it comes to defense. If they get into a scenario where they have to play Sam Houston, that that's concerning a little bit. Uh, now, will LSU's offense put up runs? Of course. They should. They should. But anytime a team in two games, back-to-back, on a Saturday, they scored 33 runs, they outscored the same team 33-11, to 11. oof, that's an offensive reckoning. And then you look at the four seed in that series, Tulane, 19-40, and 8-16 uh, in the American. They started the season losing... Six of their first seven, they were eight and twenty at home, six and nineteen on the road. Really got hot in the American tournament. They beat Houston ten to eight. Then they run rolled Memphis. They come back loose to Houston. Had to play them again because Houston had to beat them twice. Tulane gets them the second game, goes to the championship game to play top-seeded ECU and beats them 8-6. to six. So now Tulane's going to play an LSU team that they've already played once this season, James. Granted, it was in, it was at Greer Field in New Orleans, and it was an 11-5 victory for the Tigers. But LSU had to score five runs in the final three innings to put that game away, including three in the ninth. So this was a close game for much of it. Now, LSU did get 19 base hits in that game, uh, but that was also back when LSU's offense in early April was just absolutely wrecking people. Um, Look, I'm not saying that this game is one that I would just instantly write in LSU as the winner. But they are the heavy favorite in this regional. And I think it would be incredibly surprising if they weren't playing in a super at Alex Box Stadium next weekend. Might actually be the shock of the country if LSU doesn't play in a super regional. Because here's the thing. All season long... LSU has been the favorite to win a national championship. Correct. And But the thing is, you probably don't run Paul Skeens in this game. You probably go with Ty Floyd to start the game. Yeah. Because it's like you don't want to just throw out anyone because Tulane, even though they have a horrendous record at 19-40, and 40, it's still a team you got to watch out for. It is. It is. The only counterpoint that I would make to that is that you would want Paul Skeens to stay on as tight of a schedule as possible. And that means pitching on Friday. Now, that that sets up a catch-22 because then you burn him. Right. That's the thing is... You use your best pitcher against the four seed. Against the four seed. So then you would have to throw Ty Floyd and or Thatcher Hurd against the two slash three seed. Mm-hmm. That's a, that, that's put, a that tough, puts that's that puts you in a predicament. 
That's a tough predicament. Um, and Jay Johnson w- was asked earlier this week about that, and, and he said that he didn't want to answer any questions about the pitching matchup for the rest of the postseason. He, he didn't want to talk about it because what he's doing now is he's hiding, he's refusing to show his cards uh, if, if you're Jay Johnson. Uh, because you, you don't want to give the opposition any extra time or intel to prepare. So you're not going to tell this team, oh, I'm going to throw Paul Skeens this day. No, let it, let it surprise them. Let it catch them off guard. Let them think, oh, he's going to throw Friday, so we'll prepare for you know whoever because we're not going to play LSU till Saturday. And then, bam, you throw Paul Skeens on Saturday. You always got to keep the teams on, on, on their toes. But another thing that, that Jay Johnson said that he didn't want to talk about was he didn't want to talk about his star center fielder, Dylan Cruz, leaving. Yeah, um, the, for me, like, and I re- respect the question because I love him and I love his family and um, all of that. It's just like, for me, this is, isn't a time to, like, dwell maybe on how far we've come, you know, even though I just kind of answered that about a couple guys. Um, you know, it, for me, it's like this finality of, like, I mean, he's, he's a, one of the reasons I came here, you know what I mean, knowing how talented a player he was and had the opportunity to have him for two years. So you start there, and then the, the work ethic, the self-discipline, the team-first attitude, the guy that's all in on this that's happening right now when he's got the world at his feet or doorstep or whatever the saying is. I mean, it's just a character piece along with the talent. It doesn't come around very often. And, um, you know, I think it's just more of those, like, you know, I wish, uh, you know, wish you could coach him forever. So I don't really want to talk about how awesome he is with any kind of finality until the appropriate time to do Right, because why are we talking about him leaving already? The game, the season's not over. Can the Jay Johnson just sat there and said one of the biggest reasons that he came to LSU uprooted his family, his day to day life, everything was to coach Dylan Cruz for two years. If that doesn't tell you the type of baseball player that Dylan Cruz is, then I'm not really sure what will. I mean, are you kidding me? Guy uprooted his entire life to coach a cat for two years. That's insane. I mean, there were other reasons. I mean, sure. But, I mean, with one of the reasons that he explained being, hey, I want to go coach Dylan Cruz... Even if it is only for a couple seasons, I still want to be able to say I coached one of the best baseball players. Absolutely. I mean, that's a hell of a thing to recognize him for. We'll go behind enemy lines right after this. Danny Davis of the Austin Statesman joins us to talk about the Texas Longhorns and what the Cajuns will face Friday afternoon in South Beach right here on the game. This is Crunch Time, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to Crunch Time 436. Matt Miguez, James Mesh. The game hotline is 337-706-0111. Talking college baseball getting set for regional weekend this weekend over in Miami for the Louisiana Raging Cajuns. They will battle the Longhorns of Texas at 1 o'clock. 
in uh, the opening round game for Louisiana, the 2-3 matchup, Miami and Maine will take place later on on Friday evening. Joining us now on the game hotline to give us a preview of the Texas Longhorns is Mr. Danny Davis from the Austin Statesman. Danny, really appreciate you taking the time. Man, how are you doing this on, on this Wednesday afternoon? Doing good. Just getting ready for a weekend in Miami. Seeing how much trouble I can get into while I'm down there. Yeah, I mean, wh- how awesome is it to be able to go cover college baseball down in South Beach? It's going to be pretty awesome, but I'm also, you know, it's been a lot more awesome about 10, 15 years ago when that was kind of my kind of my vibe. I'm just an old father now, you know. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to stay up to keep up with what's going on in South Beach, but I'm going to try to get into some trouble. So, you know, Danny, we, we, we talked to you at the end of February when LSU was getting ready to play Texas in, in that game over in Austin that ended up going LSU's favor in 3 nothing. Since then... You know, you finished the season 38 and 20, 28 and 8 at home, 15 and 9 in the Big 12. What has changed about this Longhorn team from the end of February when the season was just getting underway to now? Well, I mean, if um, any of your listeners are LSU fans, they, you know, recall LeBaron Johnson um, pitching really well against a, obviously a really good LSU team in that midweek game, and you know, he's kind of built off off of that performance. And he was a guy who Texas really didn't know what they were getting from um, throughout the season, and since that game, he's kind of found a niche. Uh, he had a mid-season swoon, but um, he's, he's kind of found a niche in the rotation, and he's clearly Texas's number two um, at this point behind Lucas Gordon, who's been as advertised this season. So Texas has been able to find – a quality top of their rotation. Um, baseball fans probably know who Tanner Witt is and kind of his story coming back from Tommy John's surgery. And he's back now, but he's only able to, you know, give this team three, four innings um, once a week, which, you know, they're a good three to four innings, but it's still not uh, what Texas fans may have hoped for um, going into the season, just kind of the caliber of the pitcher he is. I mean, he very well maybe a first round pick when um, the draft happens in a couple of weeks, but, um, so the rotation's kind of figured it out. The bullpen has been a struggle the entire season. Um, injuries have not helped that bullpen, and then also this inconsistency from some of the guys in there. So um, starting pitching has been good, and it's kind of established itself. The bullpen has been inconsistent throughout the season, and then the offense has been up and down. I mean, you just kind of look at the last two weeks for Texas. That offense was could not miss against West Virginia, a top-ten team. Two weeks ago, then against Arlington, two games, 0-2, scored three runs. Um, so they've been up and down, too, as well as I mean, LSU fans know that uh, the Tigers shut them out in uh, February or maybe it was early March, whenever that game was. Um, so that the offense has been inconsistent, too. So this has been an inconsistent team that's gotten hot at some point. Um, managed to rally to win the Big 12 championship on the last uh, weekend of the season. But once again, just went 0-2 um, and cost itself maybe a chance to host a regional last week so uh, been up and down with this Longhorn team you know looking at the job that David Pierce has done uh since taking over the program in 2016 shortly after the the death of or the retirement of Augie Garrido you know you look at Texas and historically one of the winningest and most historic baseball programs in college baseball how would you grade the job that David Pierce has done in seven years and the position that he has Texas baseball in currently? I think David's done a really good job. I mean, there are some Texas fans who disagree um, because 
they haven't won a national title this year, and David isn't necessarily the warmest guy in the world, so he may not have endeared himself to to some fans, but I think he's done a really good job. I mean, they got into Omaha three times. They had one terrible season um, in 2019, but aside from that, you know, his first year there, they you know went to the final game of a regional, uh, went to Omaha in 2018. That 2019 was, was season was awful. Then 2020, everyone knows what happens then. And then last two years, they've gone to Omaha. And this year was not expected to be a good year. They were third or fourth in the preseason poll. In the Big 12 weren't ranked in the D1 poll, and they managed to win a share at the Big 12 title. And I don't think this team's going to get to Omaha um, this year, but even if they don't, um, this has been a pretty impressive year for what was supposed to be a rebuilding year. So three trips to Omaha in seven years, uh, if, if they don't make it this year, I think that's a pretty decent uh, decent run. Um, granted, you know, Omaha is not is an expectation here, not, the, not a cherry on top of the Sunday, and people kind of expect Omaha and expect – a national title, but you know, it took Augie a little while to get things going here, and um, I think David's done a pretty good job of how, you know, what he was dealt when he got here, and kind of how he's been. Con- this has been a consistently good team. They do need to kind of make that next step and you know win a national title, but I think uh, Texas fans are a little spoiled that they're complaining about three trips to Omaha in uh, the last six years. You know, if you look at the batting order for. The Longhorns, you have six everyday contributors hitting over 300. Uh, Peyton Powell at 358 with 10 homers and 43 RBIs. Eric Kennedy, 16 homers, 45 RBIs, hitting 302. Just kind of talk about this offense and, and the issues that they can provide for an opposing pitching staff. Yeah, I mean, I think going into last year, um, I think everyone kind of knew what the Texas's game plan was going to be. They were just going to swing for the fences and try to beat you beat you over the head of the, line, the long ball and having Ivan Melendez in the heart of that, that lineup helped. Um, they had to kind of refigure things this offseason because of all the, all the all the guys they lost. But, you know, they've found different ways um, to, to re-tinker this, this lineup. I mean, Peyton Powell is a fourth-year guy who has just kind of had the breakout season this year and has been really, really good and been able to kind of show people what he's thought he could do um, over those, these last four years. Dylan Campbell... I mean, he's came on late last year, had that uh, walk-off hit against East Carolina in the Super Regionals, and that's that. Um, he started off slow this year, but he's caught fire and just been really steady throughout the second half of the season. Um, they found good bats with uh, Porter Brown and uh, Garrett Guillemet in the uh, in the transfer portal, TCU and USC, and then Jared Thomas, Thomas has had a good freshman year. And then, like you said, Eric Kennedy, he's a fifth-year guy. Uh, he knows the drill. He knows what this Texas program is about. He's added more power to his his lineup, but this Texas team has just been able to, you know, when their offense is going, um, they can just beat you in different ways. They can swing for the fences. They do. They have hit a bunch of home runs and have some guys with double digit home runs, but it's not as profound as last year. I mean, they can play the small game. They can run. They can do a lot of different things. So, you know, top to bottom, this has been a pretty, not as powerful as last year, but this is an offense that if it is going, which was not in Arlington last week, um, they can, they can score some runs. And, once again, if you have those pitchers that I mentioned earlier on their A game, you know, if the Texas offense can give them four or five runs, they're they're a tough team to beat. Danny Davis of the Austin American Statesman joining us here on Crunch Time. You talked about the pitching staff, Lucas Gordon, LeBaron Johnson Jr., uh, a dynamic one-two combo there, uh, both guys with sub-three ERAs on the year. Who else could Cajun fans kind of – get to know for, for for this weekend as arms that they could potentially be facing? 
I mean, I'd imagine that after um, those two, you're going to see um, some combination. You know, if I don't. You know, David floated the idea of throwing um, LeBaron instead of Lucas on Friday, and then you know, obviously, if there's if they meet in a um, somewhere else over the weekend. I mean, I, I think you would see out of the bullpen a uh, Travis Staley, a Zane Morehouse. Those guys started the year in the rotation, and Texas just felt they're better equipped coming out of the coming out of the bullpen and being used um, as long relievers or short relievers. Zane Morehouse has kind of at times been the closer, at times been the long reliever. Um, Travis has uh, Travis has actually kind of I mentioned Tanner Witt earlier this season, um, and him only being able to go three or four innings um, this season. Travis has kind of been the um, guy after the opener. Um, for Tanner, uh, Charlie Hurley has had has had a nice uh, little season in his first year. He's a USC transfer, so I mean those are their, kind of their main guys out of the bullpen. Um, this is a team that is dinged up. David Shaw and um, uh, Heston Toll, who are probably their top two relievers, um, are unavailable because of injuries this weekend. So um, those are the guys I mentioned, and they're just going to step up. And then there's um, you know a guy like Ace Whitehead who um, you know perfect name for a pitcher. Um, he's a left-handed guy. He's probably going to be their top left-handed option this this uh, this week, and he's also um, an outfielder on the team, so probably their fourth outfielder. So he may get some run, um, you know, at, at the bat. But they're really going to need him to step up, step up as a pitcher this weekend too. Danny, if before we let you run, if you had to give, you know, I I'll pull out the the quintessential prototypical question here but if you had to give three keys to victory not just for friday's game but for the regional as a whole for texas uh what, what would you point out i mean it's 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 unfair for lucas and lebaron but they're going to have to be almost perfect i mean this texas team does not have enough depth to you know they're going to have to go three and zero. like they don't have enough depth to win a regional in four or five games like they need to be pretty much Perfect, and you know, win on Friday, win on Saturday, and just figure out something on Sunday. Um, as far as their pitching plan goes, um, they can't lose one and have one of the situations where they have to play twice on on Sat or because be twice on Sunday, um, and then you know, twice on Saturday or twice on Sunday, and then extend it into Monday. They just don't have enough pitching depth. So they need to take care of business. Those guys have to be on top of their game. If either of them struggles, it's going to be tough for this Texas team. Then offensively, they just need to, you know, stay within themselves, have good at bats, not um, be sloppy as they were um, in, in Kansas and Kansas State, and just let, you know, let these guys do what they did against West Virginia. Let Dylan Campbell um, do his thing. He has a 35 game hitting streak. Let some of these other guys, uh, you know, um, you know, produce some runs and just have good at bats. Don't get sloppy. And you know, it's easy for me to say um, from the press box, but I just kind of think they just need to be have a better more patient approach at the plate and just look better offensively than they did than they did in Arlington because they did not did not look like a super regional team in Arlington. But the week before in West Virginia, I think there are some Texas fans who are getting kind of excited thinking about maybe another trip to trip to Omaha. So we'll have to see which Texas team shows up. But I think first and foremost those pitchers, um Lucas Gordon and Baron Johnson have to be pretty much pretty close to perfect this week for Texas to be able to pull that out because they just don't have the depth to have a long weekend in Miami. Danny Davis of the Austin American Statesman joining us here on Crunch Time. Danny, really appreciate your time. Enjoy the trip down to Miami, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. I appreciate it. And there he goes, Danny Davis of the Austin American Statesman. Real quick before we take a timeout, the NFCA has announced their All-American teams and their award winners. A couple of Cajuns getting honored. Carly Heath is a second team 
NFCA All-American. Maya Davis is a third-team All-American. And Maya Davis also received the Golden Shoe as being the nation's steals leader in college softball. Getting the Golden Shoe as a freshman, pretty big deal for the Louisiana Raging Cajuns. We'll take a time out here for 449. When we return, we'll wrap up hour number one, and we'll go back behind enemy lines with the Tulane Green Wave right here on The Game. This is Crunch Time on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Are you tired of your boring man cave? Well, the game 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles wants to hook you up with the ultimate man cave makeover built by Lafayette Marble and Granite. Sign up today in the clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com for a chance to win a new recliner from Borderlands Furniture, flat screen TV from AVI, and more. It's the ultimate man cave makeover powered by Lafayette Marble and Granite and the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. You're listening to the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Slings it far side. Stingley steps inside the receiver and picks it off. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. A shot to left field. Going back on its Gordon. He'll look up at the goner. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Welcome back to Crunch Time. I was wrapping up our number one here on the game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. We're broadcasting live from the FCO Development Studios in Upper Lafayette. FCO Development is a civil construction company that specializes in multifamily construction. Don't forget to vote on the poll question of the day on both Facebook and Twitter. It's a foodie poll question since it is a Wednesday. What's your favorite ballpark concession food? Is it maybe some nachos? Maybe like a good old hot dog, pretzels, or maybe something else. I usually tend to go with a burger and or a hot dog. And hot dogs leading at about 56%, Matt. Nachos is about 32.5%. Pretzel getting 1.3%. Pretzel's not getting a lot of love. You have to get a hot dog at every ballpark you ever go to. Does it have to have mustard? No. Okay. Doesn't have to. But you have to get a hot dog. Now, if it's somewhere like the Teague where you go there all the time, that's different. But like if you gotta experience a ballpark dog at as you, many ballparks right. as you can. If you go to an MLB if you go to a new MLB park, you better get a hot dog. <laughs> you you gotta compare the hot dogs to everywhere else. By the way, if you've never been to LA for a Dodgers game, the world famous Dodger dog. It's just a hot dog. Nothing nothing special about it. Not shocked. But what was shocking was another move that was made by the Saints today. Actually, a couple of moves. They got veteran tight end, former Pittsburgh Steeler, Detroit Lions, Chicago Bear, Jesse James. Uh... Add, another, add another tight end to the room, which apparently you're mad at them getting depth, which is I... crazy to hear from you. And then they also got another fullback in Jake Vargas who played a total of two games solid since 2020. Solid. Uh, so that's two fullbacks now on the roster. Adam Prentice has kind of been the guy for the Saints since 2021. So it'll be kind of interesting to see. Probably going to be tr- camp, training camp bodies. For sure, James. Uh, I mean, Bargus might... This man hates Jesse James. Bargus might be able to make something out of, out of his time. You never but, know, because the Saints tend to kind of move on from a fullback every two to three years. It's true. 
I remember it was Austin Johnson for a hot little minute. Remember Eric Lorig? Yeah. Eric Lorig, man. John Kuhn. Nothing better than Kuhn. Oh, John Kuhn. Nothing better than John Kuhn. You remember that three-touchdown game against the Chargers? Yeah. In Los Angeles? Absolutely. Or no, it wasn't Los Angeles. It was San Diego at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. But no, I I just... I'm not against depth. I'm not against training camp bodies. I get it. I just don't understand why you need six tight ends when... Realistically, you're only going to have two actual tight ends on the roster. Well, you got about 90 spots to fill, and you got plenty of other depth at other positions. I so mean, I guess. So to me, it like it's it's not going to hurt anything to kind of have him be a guy that could compete. And if he if he ends up just being spectacular enough to, for them to be like, yeah, we need to have Jesse James on the roster. Other than your eyes, because you have to watch him for the next six weeks. <laughs> but, I mean, it doesn't hurt. It really doesn't. That's the thing. Yeah, that's fair. Hour number one in the books. Hour number two, we're going to do Hoot at Wednesday with our guy Brendan Ertle. We'll get his thoughts on Jesse James plus OTAs, and we'll kick off hour number two with the voice of the Tulane Green Wave, Corey Glore, talking about the 19-40 and 40 Green Wave Headed to the NCAA tournament. All that and more coming up on Crunch Time, hour number two, right after this top of the hour sports update. You're clocked out. We're locked in. You're listening to Crunch Time with Miguez and Mesh here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Hour number two of Crunch Time here on the game. Matt Miguez, James Mesh. The game hotline is 337-706-0111 as we are broadcasting live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette. Evco Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction. In hour number one, we looked at the regionals, broke them down just a little bit, and chatted with Danny Davis from the Austin American Statesman about the Texas Longhorns. Here in hour number two, Brendan Ertle is going to join us as he does each and every Wednesday for Who Dat Wednesday, looking at the New Orleans Saints. But right now, let's stay in New Orleans. Let's go to Uptown, talk about the Tulane Green Waves. They prepare for the Baton Rouge Regional this weekend. They'll play LSU Friday at 2 o'clock, pregame at 1.30. You can catch it right here on the game. Corey Glore, the voice of the Green Wave, joining us here on the game hotline. Corey, thanks for taking the time, man. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm about to talk about NCAA regional baseball, and I did not anticipate that, frankly, with the year that happened here at Tulane. Well, let's let's start there. Uh, a, a very tumultuous year. You go 19 and 40, and you get hot the one week that it matters, and now you're playing in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, and uh, I would love to say that there was a sense that a week like last week was on the horizon, but it, there really wasn't. There there was no real surge into the postseason. They dropped five of their last six to end the regular season. They got run-ruled in Memphis twice in the final weekend of the regular season. And so this really felt out of nowhere. The, the only kind of common thread from the middle of February to now was that even as the losses kept piling up here, there was never really a sense within that locker room that there was anyone 
disappointed with each other or fighting with each other. It held together. Everyone was still on the same page, even as losses were far more prevalent than wins. And they all believed that at some point it was going to turn into something good and the breaks were going to start coming. Uh, and, and they put it together. They did put it all together when they needed to the most. Now, looking at, at the week that Tulane just went through in the American Conference Tournament, just kind of talk about the, the the run that they went on, you know, beating Houston twice, run-ruling Memphis, and then the battle on Sunday with, with top-ranked ECU. Uh, you know, who, who were guys that, that stood out? What were maybe some unexpected things that happened this weekend? Just kind of talk about the week in Clearwater. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of hinges. I think you can kind of find T.O. Banks, the center fielder at the center of it. He was on 15 times. He was the, the most outstanding player, had three homers. This seemed like every time he was up at the plate, he was smashing a baseball. And so he was in the thick of all of it. But, uh, I mean, in a week like that, you need just a little bit extra from the guys on the mound. And almost everyone to a man stepped up a little bit more than what I think this team was hoping they would. You know, the Dylan Carmouche had an eight-inning complete game against Memphis, the one you referred to there, and that was against the conference pitcher of the year. So he outdueled him. And then you got just enough extra from the bullpen that has been such a problem all year long that had some shutdown outings in game one. It was Chandler Welch going five and two thirds in long relief. In the final game, it was Jonah Walker with three and two thirds innings to stretch that to the end and finding just enough bullets in the chamber to push that across the finish line. The other element was that, I mean, they put up 49 runs across the week, which of course is not going to hurt you, but 20 of those runs came from the sixth inning onward in all of those games. And so they took leads in the middle of the game and then built on those leads late in the game. And so they never were able to, like, they kept keeping teams at arm's reach because offensively they just kept putting pressure on. Now, you, you look at a guy like Jay Allman, his, his first year as the head coach of Tulane, and again, we talked about the rough start I remember when when Tulane played the Cajuns. I want to say the Green Wave were eight and twenty headed into that game, and for now to be headed towards the NCAA tournament. Just talk about the job that he's been able to do as head coach of the Green Wave to put them in this position. Yeah, I, I think you know. I think there, there's maybe a small amount of justification for coach Ullman here I mean the year was the year and last week doesn't erase that the year was still a, a, the worst ever in program history um, but I there I think now there's kind of a, a realization that the messages that coach Ullman was sending to this group that what he was trying to put in play here can work like it really can come together when everyone is still seeing eye to eye um, and and on top of that, I think now he's getting the, the due accolade needed um, for for holding everything together when this team had every reason to fall apart. And so, you know, there weren't a ton of injuries. It was a lot of young guys coupled with, you know, guys that were, you know, been in college ball for three, four, five years but haven't had a ton of experience. And so there was really no veterans, per se, that kind of have been around the block doing this. And 
oh, with a first year coaching staff, um, here's here's the results. You know, the the fifteen and thirty nine regular season, but everyone was still on the same page in that locker room, and eventually it was going to turn. The fact that it turned as dramatically as it did last week, that still has a lot of people here, I think, in a sense of delirium. Uh, but it just goes to show that what Jay Ullman was putting in place, the foundation he was trying to lay, does have some merit to it. And this team bought in from the start, and now they're getting the rewards for it. Looking at the statistics, you brought up T.O. Banks, 18 homers, 51 RBIs, most outstanding player of the American Conference Tournament. Brendan Brendan Lambert has 50 RBIs on the year as well. Uh, just kind of talk about this offense for Tulane, what it can do well, where it kind of struggles, and how it matches up with LSU. Well, I, I don't know if it's ever going to match up with LSU. I mean, I mean, to just put it just <laughs> spade a spade. I mean, we've seen LSU once this year. It was actually one of Tulane's better played midweek games of the season. It was still a loss, but you know, there's obviously some familiarity. But when you're talking about the type of lineup that LSU has, on top of certainly the, the number one guy in the rotation and even a little bit behind him in the rotation. I mean, Tulane is going to be a massive underdog for a reason, but what Tulane was able to do offensively in Clearwater was, you know, T.O. Banks had opportunities to drive runs in because Gavin Scholes, the shortstop in the nine hole was on base 15 times. And so the bottom of the order was getting on and then T.O. would drive him in then he'd get on. And then there's Brennan Lambert, who had 11 RBIs on the week, well, he was always up with a runner on in some capacity. And so it was just as simple as stringing quality at-bats together. And there were flickers of that during the course of certainly the conference season, but not consistently enough. And then it all kind of came together again in Clearwater. It is not the same type of lineup as LSU. Tulane will try and run just a touch more, but that's been a problem this season. LSU will not run at all um, because they've got some of the best hitters in the country. And so when push comes to shove, Tulane will need to probably put some things in motion against LSU once they get on, if they can get on, because you imagine, especially if they see schemes, and there's no word yet on if they will, um, opportunities might be few and far between to try and score. And so they might get a little bit more aggressive on the bases to try and put some pressure on an LSU defense that can be a little faulty. Corey Glore, the voice of the Tulane Green Wave, joining us here on Crunch Time. Looking at the pitching staff for the Green Wave, Ricky Castro with a 5.14 ERA in 17 appearances. Dylan Carmouche close behind him with a 5.44 ERA, a 5-8 and eight win-loss record. You know, talk about this rotation, who LSU fans can expect to see on Friday and then again throughout the weekend? Yeah, I, I don't know who will get the ball Friday. I, I, Coach Ullman has not announced that yet. They both threw in some capacity Sunday in the championship game. Carmouche threw three innings of relief. Castro got the save. Castro struggled in his two starts in the conference tournament. Houston got him pretty good in both times. Carmouche had the complete game, eight-inning work against Memphis, but he had really labored heading into the postseason. Uh, and so you got a lefty with a devastating changeup in, in Dylan Carmouche, a Mississippi State kickback in his second year of really leading this rotation. And then you have Ricky Castro in his first and final year at Tulane, 
who's a terrific sinker changeup guy from the right-hand slot, and he's an all-conference pitcher this year. That ERA got blown up in the conference tournament, but he had been one of the more consistent pitchers, certainly in the American, uh, throughout the course of the year. And so I think Tulane feels good about their one-two in the rotation here. Um, they haven't decided who they're going to go with yet to start things off Friday at 2 o'clock. Um, they're going to look at you know the, the LSU lineup and, and go from there. Um, but I think whoever Tulane throws out there, they feel comfortable with their starting pitcher, whomever it's going to be. You know, you look at Tulane at, at 19 and 40 and playing in the NCAA tournament, and you've seen people on social media call for the, the qualifications to get into the tournament to be changed. Um, obviously, you guys don't feel that way because you, you were the benefactor of, of the rules this year. Um, but, but I guess the question is, is, you know, from here on out, you know, should a team with the resume of Tulane this year, struggled throughout the regular season, got hot in the tournament and won the conference championship going forward, should it change to where you need to do more than win the conference championship to get into the NCAA tournament? Well, it's what I find interesting is that this topic rarely comes up for the basketball tournament. Right. Um, but it's coming up now. And this is not an every year scenario here. Tulane making the tournament under 500 is not an every year deal in the NCAA tournament. If people have issues with Tulane making it in, there's 60 opportunities for teams like Arizona State or Kansas State or UC Irvine to make up for that, and they didn't. Now, some of those teams deserve to get in. They all deserve to get in some capacity here, but the issue is not with Tulane. The issue is with the RPI structuring everything and being so heavily leaned on by the selection committee. I think there were a lot of people around Tulane, even with the rivalry that tends to exist a little bit, that were thrilled to see Louisiana make it because I think that was suddenly a common story after Sunday was did Tulane knock Louisiana out. But we saw Louisiana. We knew how good they were, and I think there was, a, a, there was in fact, the watch party, there was a, a decent amount of applause when, when the Cajun flashed up on the board. Um, the, the, the issue is not with automatic bursts in the conference tournament. If conference want to, conferences want to reset that and make it regular season champions, that's their prerogative. But this is what it's like nationwide. The issue is that it's an outdated metric that slots in all the bubble teams that leans heavily towards teams primarily in the SEC. That's the issue. And so if people have a problem with 19 and 42 lane making it into the NCAA tournament, they can direct their issues to the bigger problem, and that is how the committee actually slots the at-large field of 64. So it sounds like you agree that the RPI is a flawed metric. Um, and if that's the case, how does the committee go about you know, changing it up, trying something new to, to kind of dictate who gets in? Well, I mean, that's, if, if I had the answer to that, uh, I think I'd, I'd be sitting in that room in some capacity. But I mean, ba- basketball has found a, a, a better metric to go about it. Um, the metric that exists right now in college baseball is not all that dissimilar from basketball. But the problem is, it still leans heavily on um, the, the the home competition, the road competition you play, and for teams in the North, the Midwest, and the West. 
who don't get the chances to load up on teams that the ones in the South and the Southeast do, then it continues to get skewed. And so there's got to be a barometer that falls in place that brings more of the country together because the the West had a lot of teams miss out. Um, You know, I mentioned two of them. UCSB is another one. Um, and, and a couple host teams that didn't make it, like Boston College, didn't get a regional. And so th- there's got to be a metric that at least brings it all in. But when push comes to shove, there's got to be a little bit better visibility on part of the selection committee to actually see what's going on from coast to coast and not just look at the number next to the RPI category. Corey Glor, the voice of the Tulane Green Wave, joining us here on Crunch Time. Corey, appreciate your time as always. Uh, enjoy the short trip over to Baton Rouge for this regional. Have a great call, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. I appreciate it, boys. Thank you. And there he goes, Corey Glor, the voice of the Tulane Greenway, 517 on your Wednesday. Let's take a timeout here. When we return, we will talk more about the NBA playoffs. We'll look at some MLB scores, get you set for the Astros game tonight, right here on the game. This is Crunch Time on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. The game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, is your home for the McNeese Coaches Show, presented by Mr. Bill's Seafood Express, the Southwest Beverage Company, line of bed out of Westlake, and the Southwest Louisiana Law Center. Tune in tonight starting at 6 for the final McNeese Coaches Show of the season as host Jim Gazzola will be talking with new men's basketball coach Will Wade. And you can hear it all right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, your home for the McNeese Coaches Show. Let your voice be heard. Hello. Give us a call on the hotline at 337-706-0111 and speak your mind. Hello. This is The Game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back, 521. Matt Miguez, James Mesh, Game Hotlines, 337-706-0111. So, James... We didn't get to talk yesterday about the Indianapolis 500 over the weekend. Real quick storyline. Not really going to get super in-depth into the race. Joseph Newgarden got his first career Indianapolis 500 victory. It was great. They had a lot of red flags. There was a lot of wrecks. Yada, yada, yada. But the story of this race has become the flying tire. If you're unfamiliar with what I'm talking about, there was a wreck. Late in the race, probably 15 laps, 20 laps to go. And a car, one of the Indy cars perfectly hit the back tire of another car. And when it happened, the tire went flying over the fence. It diagonally skated across the grandstand full of fans and kind of landed in in no man's land. Or so you thought. Come to find out after the race, it landed on the right hood of a fan's vehicle. And the pictures were... It it was pretty bad. It, it, It messed up the car real good. Now, still drivable, but you're talking a lot of body work to fix what that tire did. Roger Penske 
who is a well-known IndyCar owner as well as NASCAR owner, things of that nature. His company, Penske Entertainment, which not only owns the IndyCar series, but it also owns Indianapolis Motor Speedway, has announced that they would give Robin Matthews, the owner of the vehicle, a brand new car as an apology. So, James, you go to the Indianapolis 500. You now have one hell of a story to tell. And you get a car out of it. I'm I'm waiting to see the negative. Minor inconvenience because you have to wait. And right. You, you probably get a rental or you maybe have to drive like your wife's. Oh, oh, darn. A, a minor inconvenience. I mean, now the, the article doesn't say what type of car is she getting. Are they just going to give her the, the same Chevy Cruze that she had? Or if they're going to give her something better, I don't really know. Uh, but apparently she called her car Snowball. It was a white Chevy Cruze. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had to be towed because of the damage to the crash. But another part of this, the tradition at the Brickyard, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, is if you win the race. Now, NASCAR does this as well. But at Indy, you do it for the IndyCar series. You, the driver, the crew chief, and his entire crew, the start-finish line is made out of bricks. And it is tradition that you go to the start-finish line, get on your knees, and kiss the bricks. They gave Robin Matthews the opportunity to go down on the track and have her kiss the bricks. If you're a race fan, how many race fans do you know that got a free car from Roger Pinsky and got to kiss the bricks? None. Yeah. What a what a story that is. I mean, look, obviously a, a terrible situation that her car got ruined, but I don't think that it could have had a much better outcome uh, for a race fan from Indianapolis. But if you look at the Houston Astros, we talked about it earlier, 32-22, and 22, big win last night, 5-1. to one. They're going to be back tonight at Minute Maid Park, a 7-10 first pitch, 6-40 pregame. Uh, you will hear the pregame show beginning at 7 after the McNeese Coaches show. Minnesota Twins coming in at 28 and 27 on the season. Louis Varland will go for the Twins, 2 and 1 with a 4.24 ERA, 34 innings. He's given up 9 home runs on the season. Meanwhile, Hunter Brown going for the Astros. What a story Hunter Brown has been. 5 and 1 on the season, a 3.12 ERA. He's pitched 57 and 2 thirds innings. He has 66 strikeouts and he's only given up 4 home runs. Maybe even a bigger story than Hunter Brown, James. How good has Jordan Alvarez been for the Houston Astros? Hitting 283 on the season, 14 homers, 48 RBIs. They're 54 games into the season, exactly a third. So let's extrapolate his numbers. He is on pace for 42 homers and 144 runs batted in. 
just hand the man the MVP trophy now. I mean, right? And who passed him up in fantasy? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. I had a tough decision to make. Did I want Kyle Tucker or did I want Jordan Alvarez? All offseason long, it was Kyle Tucker's finally going to have his breakout MVP season. Kyle Tucker's going to be that dude. And look, Kyle's not having a bad season. No, he's not. No. But he's not having a Jordan year. No, he is not. But I, I drank the Kyle Tucker Kool-Aid. And now I'm in sixth place in fantasy because of it. So... I don't think that's the only reason, but... Also, while we're on the subject of the Astros, we talked about this before. Umpires being on power trips. Yeah, that happens from time to time. It happened last night in Houston. Jeremy Pena got a really bad strike call. The ball was outside. And so he's standing there. He doesn't get overly irate. Now, I don't know exactly word for word what he said, to the umpire, but you can see him exchanging words to the umpire. And then you see the umpire lean over the catcher and get in Jeremy Pena's face. And again, says something to him. I'm not really sure what he said, but it clearly fired up some people because the hitting coach in the dugout, Alex Citrin, was seen going off on the umpire. He actually got ejected from the game. James, my, my biggest gripe with this scenario is Jeremy Pena, I, I've seen the clip numerous times today. Jeremy Pena stayed calm. He did not, you know, flail his arms, screaming at the ump, that's a terrible call, yada, yada, yada. He stayed very calm. He looked professional, made a comment. Yeah, just like just gave a simple displeasure of It happens all the time. Hey, that was outside. It happens all the time. But do you ever see an umpire get into a batter's face during an at bat? And also leaning over the catcher. Right. <laughs> like how rude. I How you think I'm feeling if I'm Martin like, dude, why are you over? Like, what, what are you, you what are you doing? What are you doing? I just Or well not Martin, but don't don't be that guy. Just don't be that guy. If you want to have a conversation with him, have a conversation with him at the end of the at bat. Or or here's a magical idea. Go around the catcher. Uh, I'll I'll even add that in. Or you just let it go. Because again, he's not yelling at you. He's not cursing you out. He's not he he literally if I had to guess, Jeremy Pena probably looked at him and said, eh, that was a little bit outside, but okay. Sure. I mean, if, if if that's your call, that's your call. Might have been a little bit of sass, but you know. I mean, but again, the umpire is supposed to just let that go. Right. I just, you can't let that affect you. Oh, my God. So, And especially from a veteran umpire. Like, like this dude's done it for 20 years. I just, I, I don't get it sometimes, man. Sometimes they just the umpires just want to be in the middle of it, and there's just no place for that. But anyways, five thirty-one. We'll take a timeout. Brendan Ertle joins us next. Who dat Wednesday? We'll talk about the new tight end for the New Orleans Saints, plus another OTAs update right here on the game. 
He's going to go. Touchdown, Saints. Who's ready for some New Orleans Saints talk? We are. Here is Who at Wednesdays with Canal Street Chronicles' Brendan Ertle on Crunch Time with Miguez and Mesh. Signing a sixth tight end, signing a second fullback, and your new running back rocking an anime visor at OTAs. Brendan Ertle, what's going on in Metairie, dude? It's it's a nice little change of pace, you know. We got some offensive weapons, and um, it, it's it was a problem in the past. Maybe we didn't have enough, but I think now we have too many. So, good problem to have. Okay, I'm I'm gonna ask the jokingly question first before I get serious. Uh, what's the likelihood that Jake Hayner is the starting quarterback? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> well, I think something really bad would have to happen. I think if if Dennis Allen rolls out Jake Hayner on week one, I we, think some people would come for his head just because they paid Derek. Um, you get the Jameis stands. I, I think Derek and and Jameis would need to get hurt in the preseason, and you know even at that point maybe go out and sign someone. But man, that, what a question! Jake can start in a modeling line before he starts on the field. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So you know OTAs still going on in full swing. Uh, they're getting ready to wrap up, though, training camp in, in about six or so weeks. You know, what, what's kind of the the takeaway from OTAs and, and the process now where the roster is going to go from 90 guys to, you know, 72? Yeah, a little bit of a change of pace this year um, than other years. I think we've had more veterans that um, have been here. Uh, the, the players, Alante and... Um, some of the other DBs have talked about how you know important it was for them to have Tyron and Marcus May there. Um, I think that's really underrated. Uh, but what Dennis Allen's kind of said was uh, what they're doing during these OTAs is Algebra 101. So it's like these veterans don't need to be there. Um, a lot of them are, but the ones that aren't there, it's like, yeah, you know, I think each of us has skipped a class here and there because we didn't think we needed it. So. I fully understand that some players aren't there, but um, it, it's been good for the people who are there to, to get some reps with those veterans, and uh, the younger guys as well have been able to show out a little bit more than they would have usually. Looking at, uh, you, you brought up the veterans sitting out OTAs. You know, some people get fired up about that, but honestly, I think it's a good opportunity for the vets to just kind of take some extended time off you know, get get healthy if you dealt with some injuries the year before. Uh, OTAs is really an opportunity for your new guys and your rookies to get used to the the new lifestyle in, in New Orleans. Uh, Kendra Miller still working himself back from a knee injury. Uh, you, you've seen a lot out of Eno Benjamin so far in, in camp off to the side. He hasn't been fully participating due to an injury. Uh, Nick Salvaderi finally getting some work done at, at OTAs. What have you been keeping up with in, in terms of OTAs so far? You know, OTAs is difficult because it feels like all these players, you know, we have a lot of newcomers on this team. Like you said, um, Jamal and Derek and all those guys are, are new people, so it, it's good getting them in here and getting them learning. But you, you really look at the year two guys and the guys who have been here before, you know, the Lucas Krolls. Uh, you want to see that uh, step forward. I think the the Jesse James signing is interesting. I think that's a little bit of a competition for you know tight end three. I think we got a good solid 
duo of Juwan and, and Foster, but I, I think, you know, Lucas isn't going to get that free tight end three spot. There's going to be some competition. So uh, the main takeaway for me has been the guys that have already been here because that's when you really see improvement from year one, year two. And I think, I think if you really look at it, I think the star of the offseason so far has been Rashid Shahid. There's been so much talk surrounded by him. And if you look at just the games that he was activated last year, if you told me, if you blindfolded me and told me this kid was a first-round pick, I'd be like, yeah, I, I can see the talents there, and uh, maybe with some more practice, um, he can really explode. And I think that in going in year two, you know, different number, he's gained a little bit of a weight. Um, that, that He wanted more weight on him, and he's a little dude, but hasn't lost any of his speed. I think he's been the real star of this offseason. And I think if you really look at it, um, the duo of just Olave and Shahid together is – it's a really good duo, and you add Michael Thomas, of course, and the other guys they have in the room. I think it's a really good room, um, and I think Shahid's really taken over at that position. Yeah, Rashid Shahid and Chris Olave, like you mentioned, have both been fantastic through throughout OTAs. Now, uh, an interesting conversation that has been brought up because you just don't really know what version of Michael Thomas you're going to get, right? Do you hit the free agency market and go acquire a veteran like DeAndre Hopkins? It's something that I would sit down and think about. And I know some fans would be like, no, no. I know some fans would be like, heck yes. I think it's interesting because you have three wide receivers who can play each each position of the wide receivers, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever you want want to call them in the slot. And I think Michael Thomas does a lot of good things in the slot as well. Um, And I think a lot of it, did a lot of good things in the slot, too. And uh, Rashid he's been inside and outside. So I think you have three guys that can be kind of interchangeable. Um, the thing about Hunter Renfro was uh, you get a you get a guy that's specifically for the slot that runs those routes well, that knows Derek Carr, and that's what you were looking for in that position. You're, you're going out and trading for a Lance Moore, uh, you know, maybe even a better version of Lance Moore. So that would make sense there. But DeAndre Hopkins, I think – it's not necessarily insurance, but if you think Michael may not be old Michael Thomas or you, you don't know a year or two down the road if you'll still have this guy, I think you go out and do it. And I know DeAndre is looking for a pretty good deal, and the way Ian Rapport explained it was he's, he's kind of looking for a Michael Thomas kind of deal. He said he's looking for a Michael Thomas deal. Maybe a one-year deal where you give him a base of 10 to 12 a million and there's incentives to go get 15, 16, 17. And if you look at the teams around the league, that makes sense. You know, Buffalo, people say Kansas City. I don't think that makes sense. Uh, they have too many young guys in the room, and I don't. They've clearly shown us that they don't like to pay wide receivers. Um, you know, maybe maybe a team like the the, the Browns um, could make sense because Deshaun or the Patriots. But if you really look at it, the team with the most money right now in this conversation is the Saints. So if they if they feel like you know what let's just go get one more guy, because they really wanted to address that contested catch position and did they? Maybe I mean they brought back Michael, they brought back Juwan, uh, brought in Brian Edwards, but did they really address the need? I don't really know. So that would be something I would I would explore for sure. Is you have what almost fourteen million dollars in cap space? Um, look into it. Now, you you brought up Hunter Renfro, and I could see why that de- that move would be enticing. Obviously, the relationship he has with Derek Carr, 
you comped him to Lance Moore, which I think is very fair. Do you think the window has passed for the Saints to go get Hunter Renfro, or what's the what's the big holdup for New Orleans? I don't think the the deadlines even really started. I, I didn't think there was a, a legit chance of getting him till June first hit because that's when they saved. That's when they would have saved the most money. And I get you can trade him and designate that money else till to June June first, but I feel like the deadline starts uh, the first. And then that's when things start to really get rolling. And um, I, I've gone on and off about, you know, will they trade him? Um, I mean, they, they dealt Darren Waller for, for really not that much and maybe not as much as he's worth. And, you know, we got the rumors with Jimmy Garoppolo, like him with, with, with his injury. Um, is he going to pass the next physical? I don't know. How healthy is he? I don't know. Just the, the outlook on the Raiders right now is really, really weird. And, I, I wouldn't put it past them to still trade him. I still think um, there's real interest from the Saints. I, I, I think the problem is if they want to get this deal done is uh, is money. I don't think they want to pay all that money that is on his deal, and I think the Raiders would have to pay some of it. And it sounds like the Raiders may want a player or something. So um, I, don't, I don't think there's any real rush for this. Um, and if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. I, I feel like the Saints are in a good spot at the position. Um, you know, we have solid depth and, and Brian Edwards, James Washington, you got the younger guys as well. Um, so I don't think it's something that they need to do, but if it works out for them, I, I think it would make sense. Chatting with Brendan Ertle here for Hoodat Wednesday. You know, as OTAs get ready to wind down, and obviously there's going to be a short pause between OTAs and training camp, what does the next, you know, six weeks look like for New Orleans as they get set for training camp? I would like to see, you know, I, I know that they'll probably go out and um, do some certain things elsewhere, but I've heard some some things. Alave was on the Rich Eisen show. Um, we've heard from other receivers as well. Um, it sounds like Derek Carr wants to plan some kind of some kind of workout somewhere with all the guys. So if they could get that done, I think that be, would be great for them. I know they did something similar to that last year in Miami. Um, I don't know who the quarterback was throwing. I don't know who. I, I think it was Jameis that was was in Miami with them. But they kind of went out on like a offensive retreat to Miami. So I feel like they need to do something like that again this year, just because there's so many new phases. Um, uh, pretty much learning a whole new system as well. So uh, I would love to see them go out and connect. I don't want them to just go out on vacation and not see each other again till training camp. I think um, you know Derek Carr hasn't. I'm sure he's had some conversation with Mike. I don't know if they've worked out together at all, but you know, you'd like to see that connection start to get a little bit closer, even even if he's not running 100% or wherever his status is. Uh, I know Mickey Loomis said Michael Thomas would probably be ready to go for training camp, so I'd like to see him get together. But you know, it's kind of a dead period, and it's it's a good time just just to relax. And uh, I know some of these guys will will enjoy this time and take it off, but um, there's a good balance between you know vacation and getting to work too so what are your thoughts on the new kickoff rule in the nfl i think it's i think it's interesting i i don't i don't i don't love it um i think if if you have a good returner like we do and uh rashid Shahid, I, I think it doesn't affect us affect us as much i still think you know if if he catches the ball at the five i think he's going to take it out but it, it kind of helps protect teams from um situations where they maybe don't have a good kick returner or there's injury at that position it, it kind of just it feels like it steps towards eliminating the kickoff altogether 
Um, I, I think it's one of the one of the most important parts of football as special teams. So I, I feel like us kind of breaking down the rules a little bit as special teams, it's, it hurts people's jobs, and uh, I don't love it, but I don't hate it. I know college is the same way, and it hasn't really changed the game too much. Um, but it just kind of prevents some teams from taking the ball out. I know that's what they want, less concussions. It's a dangerous play, but um, I, I don't I don't love it. Uh, but I don't hate it. I, I think I, I think it won't affect us too much because we have a great returner. You're a big NBA guy. Who wins the NBA Finals out of the Nuggets and Heat? It's it's been tough watching the Heat these past few weeks. It's been it's been impressive. Um, they won that three game little stinker against against the Celtics. But um, I know I know your boy in there's not too happy about Boston. He's but broken hearted. I, I think. <laughs> I think Miami has too many guys that are playing well right now. I don't think they'll necessarily win this series. Um, the Jokic versus Bam battle is going to be interesting. I don't. I don't think there's anyone on Miami that can slow down Jokic. Uh, Jamal Murray's been great, uh, but Miami's role players have been really, really good. So I think if Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo can really have those games that they had in one, two, three against Boston. I think Miami could win this year. No, no. But if I'm pick, if I'm a betting man, I, I'd say Denver and six. Don't don't drink that Miami Kool Aid. Don't do that. It's just, the the Jimmy Butler, um, kind of Michael Jordan mentality. These past past few past few months have been hard to bet against. See, I just I just think that they used everything they had to hang on to beat Boston. That I, I don't know mm-hmm. how I don't know how much they're going to have left against Denver. I could see that Denver, Denver's a hot team, and uh, Miami's a confident team. So, uh, I mean, we'll, I think we'll see pretty quickly in, in Game 1 how this series will end up. How much success do the Beavs have in Baton Rouge this weekend? I'll give them one game, but, you know, if, if, they're, playing, if they're playing LSU in the second round, I think that's where it ends. Uh, it's, it's interesting, the, the LSU-Tulane game. What, what, what were they, 18-40? and 40? Tulane, yeah, nineteen and forty. Nineteen and forty. Um, yeah, I think that's a game LSU has to take care of. And you know, um, I go to Oregon State, but I'm a, I'm rooting for the Tigers all the way. Brendan Ertle, the Canal Street Chronicles, joining us here for Hoot at Wednesdays. Brendan, appreciate you as always, bud, and uh, we'll do it again next week. Yes, sir. And there he goes, Brendan Ertle. We'll take a time out. Wrap up today's show right after this. This is Crunch Time on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. The game has a brand new app and it is now your one-stop shop for all things of the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Download the free mobile app today for your Apple or Android devices by searching the game Southwest Louisiana. That way, no matter where you are, you can listen to the game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. From the Louisiana Raging Cajuns to the latest with the New Orleans Saints and Pelicans. Miguez and Mesh cover it all. I'm not worried. Uh, I think it's something that I can get under control. Now back to more Crunch Time with Miguez and Mesh here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's Sports Station. Welcome back to Crunch Time. Wrapping up today's show. Earlier today, a couple kickoff times got announced for LSU football. They will open their home slate against Grambling on September the 9th. 
6.30 p.m. from Tiger Stadium. And then their game against Mississippi State will be in Stark Vegas. But James, this one's going to be bright and early. 11 a.m. on ESPN from Mississippi State. Uh, well, you, you probably won't even be awake at, at that time. It'll be right when I wake up. Right. There it is. <laughs> there very, it is. Very much. Uh, also, Louisiana and Minnesota will kick off at 11 o'clock a.m. from Minneapolis. Um, it actually will be 10 o'clock there. No, Minnesota's in the same time zone. Never mind. I was thinking Minnesota was an hour behind, but no, they're in the same time zone. Um, so, no, 11 a.m. Uh, you could be there. I, I could, there's there's an outside possibility. There's a chance. We'll we'll get to that down the line in the future. Uh, I want to take the opportunity to thank our guest today, Danny Davis from the Austin American Statesman, previewing the Texas Longhorns. Corey Glore, the voice of the Tulane Green Wave, talking about the improbable road that they are on the nineteen to forty Green Wave in the Baton Rouge Regional, and then of course Brendan Ertle joining us for Hoodat Wednesday. Come back tomorrow, same time, 4 to 6, same station, 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. You're home for the LSU Tigers and the Houston Astros. Speaking of the Houston Astros, 7-10 tonight. We'll pick it up at 7 at the conclusion of the McNeese Coaches Show. For James Mesh, I'm Matt Miguez. Be safe, be well, give a hug to your mom and them. Stay tuned for the McNeese Coaches Show. Jim Gazzolo has... Head men's basketball coach Will Wade joining him for the final coaches show until the fall. Once again, for James Mesh, I'm Matt Miguez. We'll be back tomorrow, 4 to 6, right here on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion, Houston Astros.